before we hear the scripture from Luke, I'd like to give you a little history lesson. Just because I think understanding who Luke was and when he lived is important to understanding the things he wrote. So Luke was a devout Jewish follower of Jesus, but almost certainly a Greek Jew, which means that he was someone who was steeped in Judaism, his religion, its scriptures and traditions, and yet also he was Greek in culture and followed Greek customs and laws and social roles. And this Jewish Greek writer wrote his gospel for Gentile followers of Jesus, that is, people who were not Jewish, but converted to that early Jesus movement from pagan traditions. This cultural context is really obvious whenever Luke writes about women. While neither Jewish or Greek cultures in the first century could be considered feminist by any means, Jewish women fared far better than their Greek counterparts. For instance, Jewish women had the freedom to own property and businesses, to sit before their rabbis and learn about their religion, to represent themselves in court, and even to initiate divorce. Greek women had none of these rights. In fact, they had to be accompanied by a male relative where, whenever they left their home, wherever they went, and they couldn't even represent themselves in court. Jewish society in the first century Palestine recognized at least some of the rights of women, whereas Greek culture recognized virtually no rights of women whatsoever. And this is important because Luke appears to be writing with women in mind. For every story about a man in Luke's gospel, there's almost a accompanying story about women. And most of the time he's writing about Jewish women like Martha and Mary, who we'll hear about in a moment. But still, he was writing with a Greek lens and mostly for Greek women. And it shows because he doesn't often seem to approve of Jewish women's relative freedom. Throughout the gospel, Luke represents women as being good followers of Jesus when they are quiet and passive and at home. Both a Greek and a Jew, Luke takes a Greek view on women. So, what can the gospel of Luke even offer modern readers, especially those of us who are committed to the feminist movement? I would argue that it can offer us a lot still, even with all of its imperfections. We're about to hear a text about Mary and Martha, two sisters who probably figured very prominently in the early historical Jesus movement. This text has been used to pigeonhole women into two opposing flat stereotypes. Either you're Martha, the harpy, the nag, who's concerned about superfluous feminine details, or you're Mary, the shy, quiet, demure one. But women, and all of us, are so much more than either of these two-dimensional stereotypes. As we seek to hear a word of grace in this text, I hope you will join me in rejecting these stereotypes. In doing so, we might find more nuance in these two historical women who were important to the founding of our faith, and we might even see ourselves in them. A reading from Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Now, as they went there on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. 
But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is no need, there is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken from her. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the reflections of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Recently, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts. It's called The Anthropocene Reviewed, and author John Green hosts it. In this podcast, John rates many facets of our human-centered earth on a five-star scale. He rates all sorts of things, from Canada geese to malaria to the Taco Bell breakfast menu, and he always gives them a rating out of five stars. Now, the description of this podcast sounds satirical, like it's spoofing on our modern desire to rate everything with either a thumbs up or a like or, yeah, in five stars. But the podcast is good. It's often funny, it's often touching, and it's always thought-provoking. So if you're a podcast fan, I do, I do recommend this one. In the episode I was re-listening to, John talks about cave paintings in Lascaux, France. You probably have seen pictures of these cave paintings, even if you don't recognize the name Lascaux. There are over six thousand images in this cave in France, many of them of animals, cattle and deer and hogs and horses and birds, and even a small smattering of human animals depicted there, along with lots of geometric patterns and tan and black pigments. And though John is captivated by the animals depicted there, he spends far more time talking about the, the hand stencils left there. In Lascaux, as in ancient civilizations the world over, from Indonesia to here in the Americas, ancient people left the image of their own hands by filling long, hollow reeds with red pigment and blowing on them so that the outline of their hand was left there. Oftentimes, hundreds of people would join in this project, so you have massive murals of the outlines of ancient hands. If you have children, maybe you have made some kind of similar related art by taking your toddler's small hand and helping them to trace it on a piece of paper and then perhaps decorating it like a turkey. This kind of art, where we leave the impression of our hands, seems to be one of our favorites. No matter where we are, no matter where we live, no matter when we live, by outlining our hands, it's like saying, here I am. I lived, and I outlined my hand to prove it. And John Green, in this podcast, talks about all of this in his episode on the Lasco Cave, how these hand stencils help us to recognize how short our lives are and how long history is, the ways in which, to quote Alice Walker, 
all history is modern. It talks about the ways that we are connected to humans throughout time and space by the very simple fact of our humanity, our desire to create and share with others. And yet, I think he missed something important about the hand stencils throughout ancient history. I think he missed the very importance of hands themselves because hands are special. They are parts of the body which carry their own important emotional resonances. I bet you could recognize the hands of someone you love out of an anonymous lineup. Maybe you're married and you know the contours of your spouse's hands. Maybe the way the wedding, their wedding, wedding ring sits on their finger. Perhaps you remember a particular freckle on your mother's hands. Perhaps you're a parent and you remember how small your child's hands looked when they were little. Or perhaps you could simply recognize your best friend's hands anywhere. I bet there's somebody whose hands you can think of right now. At least, hands are a special emotional thing for me. Personally, I have a lot of memories in which hands play a central role. In particular, I think of my grandmother's hands. Now, my grandmother raised me, but we don't look very much alike. We have different builds and different colorations and different facial features, but our hands do look alike, something I realized with great tenderness as an adult and something I often remember when I look down at my own hands. It brings up all sorts of memories every time I look down and reflect on the ways that I carry my grandmother's hands on my own wrists. I remember being a child and how my grandmother would come home in the summer with huge cellophane bags of green beans, usually for a catfish fry. And she would sit in her old armchair in the living room with a stock pot in front of her. And I would sit on the floor in front of her and we would both reach into that bag of green beans and snap the ends off. I would watch her hands carefully as she did this because they always looked so graceful to me. I also remember how her hands moved with such ease when she would take big russet potatoes and a little paring knife and peel them so that way the peels came off in one long strand, something I still can't do even if I carry her hands with me. To me, her hands bring up memories of home-cooked food and how she cared for us, my brother and me, with thousands of acts of loving service. Just the thought of her hands makes me feel loved and cared for because of all the things I remember them doing. So perhaps it's no surprise that I found myself wondering what Martha's hands looked like when she came out to ask Jesus to tell her sister Mary to help her in the kitchen. I imagine she was making bread for some reason. I imagine that maybe there was sticky dough underneath her fingernails, or perhaps her hands were just simply tired from chopping or maybe her hands were sore from holding that knife. Perhaps they were already sore when she invited Jesus into her own home. Maybe she was tired from holding a needle all day, or her hands were perhaps blistered from hoeing her garden that morning. There are so many reasons her hands could have been tired, and it's easy for me to imagine that she was tired, overwhelmed from all the work she had already done that day. Sometimes from this story, Martha gets a bad reputation. She's often labeled, like I said earlier, as like a nag or a harpy or a shrew or some other sexist stereotype of women who dare to ask for help. 
But we don't actually know why Martha came out and asked Jesus to ask Mary to help her. It's almost like we are anonymous strangers who burst into Martha's house, and we're just overhearing this conversation, and we don't know the context. There's not a lot of details in this story. We know that Mary and Martha were two women who probably figured prominently in the early church, historically, because they appear in every gospel. But we know little else from this passage about their lives. And so, for a moment, I want to borrow from a Jewish practice called Midrash, which is when we take biblical passages that lack a lot of context, and we prayerfully imagine some of that context together, something that might help this text make sense to us. So, let's prayerfully imagine a few things together. When I read this short passage, imagining all the details that the text never mentions, I can't help but think that this isn't Martha's regular mode of operation, to chastise people around her to help. I can't imagine that she normally sends messages through other people while that other person is sitting in the room. Instead, I imagine a woman who cares deeply about the people around her and the way that she expresses this affection is through service. I imagine a woman who felt overwhelmed by the tasks she had before her, in part because it felt like no one was helping her and she was hosting literal God at her home. I imagine a woman who felt unloved when her acts of service were not reciprocated. And it reminds me of my grandmother's hands when they were worn out by carpal tunnel and how they hurt. And I imagine Martha's hands, and I can't help but imagine that they hurt too. I imagine that her hands ached and that her heart ached too from feeling like the family workhorse. And it makes me wonder something else about Martha. Did all her service give her any sense of how beloved she was? Did all that work leave her with a sense of fulfillment? Did she feel as if she could stop her work and still be loved and valued by the people around her? Here's my guess, my prayerful imagining. Martha felt loved only if her hands ached, only if she had new blisters on her palms, only if she worked until a carpal tunnel made her hands stiff. It's a common trap that many of us, male and female, manual laborers and white collar workers fall into. The idea that we are loved for what we do rather than because belovedness is something that God planted in us from the moment we were born before we could ever do anything. Perhaps you yourself find yourself thinking that you will be loved if you just lose a few pounds or maybe get that promotion, or make straight A's this next year at school, or get into that prestigious college. Perhaps you think you'll be loved if you keep the cleanest house, or have the finest clothing, or plan that perfect vacation for your family, or if you obtain that elusive, impossible goal of just being the perfect spouse, or parent, or child, or friend. Of course, it's a narrative that we're fed our whole lives, isn't it? Advertisements and self-help books, online diet plans and social media gurus all sell us the idea that if we just do this or that, then we'll finally be happy and loved and connected. We'll finally be complete. 
All this to say we often lose ourselves and our work and the things we do. It's a danger of modern life, and based off of Martha's reaction, it was a danger of an ancient life too. We often find our identities in the things that we do, in our work, our achievements, our awards and accolades, our degrees. In this frame of mind, we can work out our own salvation if we just construct a life that makes us worthy, worthy of love, worthy of acknowledgement, worthy of praise. But God? God does not love us because of the calluses on our hands or how hard we work. God does not claim us as God's own because we are good. God claims us as God's own because God is good. This is what I like to imagine that Jesus is saying to Martha, rather than scolding her for just doing something that was expected of her. I imagine Jesus is saying to her, Martha, Martha, I do not love you because of all the ways you keep yourself busy. I do not love you because of how hard you've worked. I just love you. And you are distracted by all these things on your to-do list. And I just want to be with you. Ultimately, it is about who we are and whose we are. And we do not belong to our achievements, our promotions, our alma maters, our wealth, or our possessions. We are nothing less than God's own children, claimed and redeemed by nothing we do, but by the love of God which unites us to each other throughout all time and space. I think again of my grandmother's hands and how hard they worked for my brother and I, for her own brothers and sisters, for her own parents, for my mother. And I think of how sore they often were from her work. But it was never her work that made me love her, even as her work was a sign of her love for us. And it's not the memory of all of her work that makes me smile when I look down and notice the ways that my hands look like hers. Instead, it's the way that her hands connect me to her, the ways that her hands would reach out to hold my own. It was never her work, but always just her. And I would be so heartbroken if I ever knew that she thought anything less. Can I bring you back to Lascaux, France, for a moment to those prehistoric hands in the caves? John Green, the host of that podcast, wrote about how this art connects us to humans across time and space. To protect those important pieces of cave art, we contemporary people can no longer visit the cave. Our presence, our breathing threatened the art. But when people who've been there describe what it's like in the cave, they describe something almost mystical, almost otherworldly. There's an awareness there that we share our common humanity, our desire to gather, our impulse to create art, with people that lived tens of thousands of years ago. Those hands, perhaps part of a religious mural, keep reaching out to us, connecting us with people whose lives we can hardly imagine, about whom we know nearly nothing, about whom we have very little in common. Earlier this morning, we witnessed together the baptism of Cain. 
And I hope as we continue to pray for Cain and his baptismal journey, we are mindful of the many hands that make a baptism. Not just Pastor Seth's as he pours the water, not just Cain's parents as they hold him now and throughout his life, and not even just our own hands as we continue to pray for all of this family, and as we continue to promise our support to Cain in his faith life. But I hope each of us will continue to think about the many hands which have passed through the baptismal waters for 2,000 years, beginning with John the Baptist and continuing on to this day. It's a mysterious, mystical part of our faith which affirms that every baptism, no matter where or when it occurs, is actually one in the same baptism. And this baptism connects us to Christians throughout all time and space, with God's love as the mortar which binds us together. It's a mystery which none of us can ever fully grasp. And above all, I hope the hands that you think of in baptism are Jesus' own hands, always reaching out to you again and again, calling you home, calling you to come sit before Christ, knowing you are loved for who you are as a free gift, not because of what you do, not because of what you have, not because you've earned baptism, but because God has claimed you as God's own, freely. You have been claimed by the waters of baptism forever, and you are held in God's hands forever. Amen.